And I'm not going to read the whole of this chapter, the whole 31 verses, but what I'm going to do is read just the first section and then the last few verses of this book. On, the day of the, on, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to glow a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storehouse of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and the temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the, for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, as well as a contribution for the priests. But while this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked for permission to come back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Now going to go just to the last few verses of this chapter. And this sums up what uh, Nehemiah had done. There are a number of other things that he did in purifying the temple and, and getting the people back on track. So I purified the priests and the Levites and everything foreign and assigned them duties, each of his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, O oh my God. So what's... The PowerPoint will come up and there should be some things there that will come up with the little notes of uh, the things I'm going to say as I go along. I, uh, and, 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 uh, so this morning we're just going to, in the introduction, have you ever felt that your efforts are a waste of time? And I'm sure that some of us have felt that way. Nehemiah may have felt that all his work counted for nothing. Nehemiah invested all he could to establish the people in the homeland. And here we can see, in, uh, as we read this in chapter in chapter 13, it seems as though he, you know, he, everything was just a, he wasted his time. Maybe he would have, could have felt that way. Let's just review the, the, you know, over the past the things that he had done. He had inspired and overseen the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. He'd witnessed their commitment to Yahweh or God and their promise to not neglect the house of God. He really supported these people in lots of ways. He had celebrated with the people, and we heard about that last week, as the two choirs sang at the dedication of the wall, and the temple became the centre of their worship. Then Nehemiah returned, and it seems as, and we got the date when he, he'd been there for 12 years. Now, really, you don't get much you know, information. We just get an outline of stuff. We don't know a lot of what he did over those 12 years that he was there. But he returned to Susa in the service of this Persian emperor and then he comes back again. 
We don't know how long he was away for, but he was certain, we, all we know historically, as the historians have looked at it, was definitely before 407, because that's the next landmark, the historians. If you've got a, an NIV study Bible, it'll tell you all of the, the information. You can read that for yourself. So here he comes with a challenge. When he, can rep- when he came back, it appeared that these people had disregarded the promises they'd made earlier. It seemed as though they'd gone back. He finds all the reforms and the promises that they'd done and, and he, all the things he'd done, the effort he'd put in to establish them in the homeland had just been wasted. And so in this chapter, we're going to find that Nehemiah identified and confronted these areas where they had compromised. Now, compromise is something that comes in very easily. It doesn't come in quickly. It can come in very subtly and very slowly. And so I'm going to, look at, I'm going to just look at four, brief, four things I'm going to highlight in this chapter, four areas where he confronts these people. And then we're going to talk on and make, try and tie it all together and make some sort of sense out of this, this chapter. One of the things was, we've read in, those, in the verses, in verses 4 to, in through to 9, was that the enemy was living there in the temple itself. He'd gone away and the rooms that were supposed to be used for storing things for the worship of God were now not being used for that. And this fellow Tobiah the Ammonite, and whether he was actually an Ammonite by race or whether he was, that was the place that he was responsible for, it's hard to work out. But here he was, he was provided with a room because he had a, a close relationship with the priest at the time. And so here Nehemiah comes in and he, they throw out all, they clear out this, this guy, they, they get rid of him. Out he goes. And connected with that was the entitlements of the Levites. And if you read on in verses 10 to 13, it'll tell you a little bit about that. The Levites were the people that served in the temple. They were the priestly tribe. From, the, from the one family, the family of Aaron, came the priests. And the rest of the tribe were the people that, that assisted in the temple, in the worship. And so the, their entitlements had been neglected. Because the rooms were being used by this, this guy... We're supposed to, that's where the things, that the, the, the things that were used for worship and the provisions for them, there was no room for them. And so they had to go back to, to work in their villages and to, to get, the, get the provide for themselves. They were supposed to be provided for. They were supposed to be looked after by the, by the people in, and, the, from the, and, and like there in that temple. The things were there so for, to provide them for all their necessities. The rooms weren't being used. And so here... They were neglecting their responsibilities, their spiritual responsibilities. And of course, we can understand because of the pressures of life and they were struggling to exist. You know, the people, they, 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 they really, you know, were, you know, there, the, the Levites were struggling to exist and so therefore they could not come and, and do their work as they should and the whole thing was interfered with. The next thing that you go on in the chapter, and if you read from verses 15 to 22, the day that they came to worship God was on their Sabbath. That's the equivalent to our Saturday. And verses 15 through to 22 outlines a little bit of information about that. That was the day they were supposed to worship God. Everything was supposed to stop while they worshipped God. But it wasn't. That didn't happen. He saw people... The wine, you know, treading on the wine presses and making wine from the grapes. He saw people trading, people from Tyre, you know, bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling it in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. 
And so he comes in and he rebukes and he tries to get these people to go back to do what they're supposed to be doing. Because the six days of work and one day of rest was in their acknowledgement of them, for, for them, they, they acknowledged that God was their creator. God, that the God that they were worshipping was the one who created the heavens and the earth. He was the one who was providing for them. And so he made them stop doing those, stop doing those things on the Sabbath. He even made them shut the gates. And then when some of the people camped just outside the gate, he warned them and said, look, if you do that, you're going to be in big trouble. And he, as the governor, he, as in the position he was, he was able to exercise that authority and they couldn't argue with him. And so that was the third thing they did. The fourth thing was that they intermarried with the other people while he's away. And you get a bit reference to that in verses 23 to 30. And he says, moreover, in verse 23, moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married the women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And he goes on and he says, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and the language of the other, of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, they would have been able to communicate because those languages were very similar. And so the kids would have been able to understand what the other people were saying, but they were speaking not in their native tongue that they should have been speaking, and that's what got Nehemiah's attention. And so he rebuked them and called down curses on them. He even physically assaulted them, which I, you know, it's one of those things that I have, I sort of look at them and wonder, what, boy, that's not a very godly way to behave physically assault people and pull out their hair. That's what he actually did. But I don't live, didn't live in that time. And he was in a position, he was, it wasn't a democracy. He was in charge, he was the boss. Nobody could question him and he was in this, and he was doing it out of zeal for God and uh, even in zeal, in the zeal that I would uh, like to see expressed in a slightly different way, but that, nevertheless, that's what happened. So let's just sum up what happened here let's just sum up what was the attitude of the israelites in this chapter you'll say well you've david you've missed out a couple of verses at the beginning that you read no i'm coming back to them now one of the very first things we find as we look at this chapter is that when the people heard the law they excluded from israel all who were of foreign descent when they heard the word of god read they were prepared to act on it and to obey it. That was the attitude of these people. Even though they had mucked it up, even though they had gone back on all the promises that they'd made, even they'd gone back on all the things that they'd promised earlier and they weren't living it out, somewhere in their hearts there was a real desire still to serve God. And even for us, even though we may have compromised on some things in our Christian life, God does not always write us off. There's always a way back. There's always room to come back and be restored back into fellowship with God. God is a long-suffering God. God is a holy God and a righteous God, but he's also a long-suffering God. And so when these people heard the law, they, they, you know, they excluded from the Israelites all who were foreigners. They started to implement it and they demonstrated they were willing to immediately obey the instructions. Then also, we found as, we, if we, as I quickly skipped through those, other, those four things, in that as Nehemiah confronted them on these different issues, they followed his instructions. And they did have a respect for their worship in the temple. 
And they didn't resist all of the things that he told them about observing the Sabbath. And so here we find that even though these people had slipped away, there was deep down within their being a desire to follow God, a desire to know God, a desire to obey God. And we see this demonstrated in this chapter. If you go through and you read it closely, you'll see that. Even though they had done the wrong thing, even though they had slipped back, they came back to God and they were restored back into fellowship as Nehemiah, the leader. Because we'll see him as the leader. He he demonstrated that he was their leader. And the Israelites followed and supported him. You know the best way to see if you're a leader? You turn around and look behind you to see if people are following. If people aren't following, you're not a leader. You can't call yourself a leader if people don't follow. And Nehemiah definitely was a leader. The people... You know, followed him. He recognised the gifts of others. As you go through this chapter, and he was redelegated some responsibility to them. He appeared to have valued, you know, integrity, and he was conscientious. And he also made the people accountable. As you go through that chapter, he appeared to have confidence in this, these people, and he trusted them. Even, you know, even though they had done the wrong thing, he, it seems as though he, he's still willing to trust them again and give them another go. Isn't that true for us? Sometimes we fail God. Sometimes we fail to live up to what God wants of us. But he lovingly restores us back into fellowship with him. And sometimes he gives us another go. One of the things as I look at this chapter, I see that Nehemiah was a a person that really had some vision of what God could do. What is vision anyhow? There's an old verse in in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 29 and verse 18 from the King James Version. Where there is no vision, the people perish. More modern translations of that says, but where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. What I'm suggesting to you here is that as Nehemiah confronted these people, he was wanting to draw them along so that they might be doing what God wants them to do. George Barner talks about, wrote wrote, wrote a book about vision many years ago. And I've just put up a sort of an extract from that book. The assumption is that Your goal is in alignment with your heart and mind and actions with God's desires and intentions for ministry. Vision for ministry relates to the state of your heart and your willingness to commit every resource at your disposal to his service. And my little statement about vision is not optional, but it's absolutely essential for ministry. We need to have a vision of where does God want us to go? What does God want us to do? And maybe some of us have lost the way. Maybe some of us have felt as though we've, you know, we've done a lot, we've done our bit, and we don't feel like we need to be keeping on going with the vision that God's given to us in our lives. Do we know what God wants of us? There are lots of examples of people of vision in the Bible. You can find Abraham. He, was, he had a, a clearly defined vision when he left Ur to fulfill God's call on his life. Abraham's servant, when he was sent back to find a wife for Isaac, knew exactly what he was doing. Moses had a difficult task to lead the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land, but he knew where he was going. Joshua had the task of conquering Canaan and establishing people in 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 their new home. And here we find Nehemiah had a clear understanding 
that God had given him vision of what he wanted done in Jerusalem. There was the walls to be built. And he was rebuilding these peoples in their, in their life, in their spirituality. And Nehemiah here in this chapter try, drew, draws these people back to where they're supposed to be. But there are lots of things that can distract us from vision. And the best example I can think of it was when I was living up on the Atherton table and there was a, a fig tree. The strangler fig. I don't know if they were that... That picture is probably not very clear. But that, the original tree is dead. And that mass, that's only a part, that's just one view of that. It's a massive, massive, massive tree. This fi strangler fig has just gone, it's just put out its roots again in many, many different places all around. And the original tree is dead. And distractions can strangle God's vision from us. We can be strangled. There's lots of growth there, there's lots of foliage there, but the original tree no longer exists, it's dead, it's gone. We can be involved in lots of activity. We can be running, our, running ourselves ragged, we can be doing all sorts of things. But it, are we fulfilling God's vision for us? Are we doing what God wants us to do? It's definite that Nehemiah knew what God wanted and he did it. He got these people back on track. He didn't give up. He didn't walk away. He didn't say, look, it's, these people are you know, a waste of time. He didn't. He continued to work with them. Because you know, one of the things is that human nature hasn't changed. The Lord Jesus understands the temptations that we go through because he himself lived on this in this world. In Hebrews chapter 2 it tells us, for this reason he become like his brothers. Because in verse 18, because he, in Hebrews chapter 2, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Because the Lord Jesus lived on this earth as a human being, he understands the stresses and the pressures that you and I are going through. He understands what happens in, what's happening in our lives. I don't know what's going on in your life, but the Lord Jesus knows. And he can come alongside you and minister to you. Christian, we experience all sorts of temptations on all sorts of fronts and, and the, the writer to writer, the apostle John, John expressed it, it talking about the world and the flesh and the devil in 1 John chapter 2 the world around us all, the, all of the, the, the pressures of this world then also the cravings of our own sinful selves our, the lust of the eyes and so on And, of course, there's the evil one that's tempting us as well. But even though we are confronted on all these fronts, we can know that, as I, that verse I quoted several weeks ago in 1 John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So as we come to the end of our, our time, this, of our sermon this morning, let's just do a little bit of a recap it appeared that the Israelites had lost their way. Nehemiah challenged them and they responded to him and also obeyed the law of God. Of course, in all of this, they were directed by the scriptures. Nehemiah certainly was a man of vision and God used him to rebuild the wall and the Israelites' character and spirituality. 
In all of this, he worked with them and he recognized the gifts of others and he delegated responsibility. He showed personal faith in God and he appreciated all sorts of things about these people. And he was also a man of prayer who depended upon God and that's expressed in his prayers that he uses throughout the book. One of the things is that identifying and confronting spiritual compromise may have helped the Israelites regain a vision for their future. And each of us this morning can commit ourselves to God and he'll remain faithful. If we've lost our way a little bit, he can help us back. He'll draw us back if we come and ask him to help us. These people fulfilled God's purpose. They got back on track because first and foremost, there was a man who led them, this godly man called Nehemiah. But secondly, it was because they had a heart to follow God as well. It wasn't just all on his side. And of course, God was at work amongst them. We can be encouraged as we, this morning as we come to the end of our t- time, this, our service, that God is at work in our world. God is at work in our church. God is at work in your life and my life. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you're a great God. Thank you for the encouragement we can get from the the book of Nehemiah as we see what happened, as we recap very briefly some of the things that happened back there so long ago. And we praise you that you're a God who can restore and rebuild and renew. And we thank you that you are never... You never write us off. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.